Happy Monday. Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Normally, I'm joined by my colleague, Will Salatan, uh, but he is off today. So we are very fortunate to be joined by one of my other colleagues, Bill Crystal. Happy Monday, Bill. Yeah, good to be with you, Charlie, and honored to pinch it for Will. Okay, so it feels uh, totally uh, wrong to say Happy Monday, given the what a grim weekend we've had. You know, and I, 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 I admit that um, I have gone back and forth between finding the images out of Ukraine to be absolutely unbearable and, on the other hand, forcing myself to look at them to realize what's happening in real time. Vladimir Zelensky is now describing it as genocide. Uh, whatever word you use, uh, these are war crimes, these are atrocities, uh, and it's really an extraordinary moment. So I wanted to get your take on it because the question that, that, that I have heard over and over and over again, once again, is what are we going to do about all of this? What does the term never again mean if we're seeing what happened? And of course, we've seen, we're seeing the images out of one town uh, near Kiev, but you know, who knows what we will find in all of the other cities that the Russians have occupied. So your thoughts on the Monday after um, the world got to see the horror of what's actually happening in, in Ukraine? No, I, I had, I think, very similar reactions to you. And also that kind of weird sentiment one has at moments like this, where you watch the NCAA finals, because, I mean, yeah. you know, what, what else? We're living here in mm-hmm. the U.S., and hopefully we've done our best to help And in terms of the argument over Ukraine, and we've contributed maybe some money to efforts to help Ukraine. And Put, you know, urge the Biden administration to do as much as possible, but you got to, you know, you can't sort of, uh, you could, I mean, but it's mm-hmm. probably, uh, well, it doesn't seem much point in dwelling on it 24 hours a day. So you watch the, and enjoy the NCAA and then you feel, but look, I'm watching this while people are discovering what happened in these, in these cities and towns. It, it is uh, barbarism. I thought it was a good word that was used by uh, the French newspaper, Liberation. I, I saw this on, on Twitter. They, uh, one of their journalists tweeted their cover for t- this morning, and it's uh, sort of a left-wing, I'd say, newspaper, but pro-human yeah. rights, sort of, is my vague impression. I'm not really up on the French press, but that's my, my sense, and um, an anti-Putin, and, uh, but they have the photo, of, you know, not the most grotesque of the photos, honestly, but a, but a photo of, that makes clear that people have been killed with their hands tied behind their back and, and the like. And just with a, the one sent, one word headline, uh, I think, what is it, barbarie, I think in French, barbarism. And that, that's a good way of characterizing it. And look, I mean, you know, uh, I hope we're doing as much as we can be doing responsibly. I, I think it'll probably could, could be doing a little more, but I've got to say on the whole, we, we've done a fair amount. The main thing is to help Ukraine win the war, and that means really getting them all the weapons we can and should be getting them, and tightening the sanctions as much as we can do. You know, now obviously there are limits in terms of we need our allies to go along, and we can pressure them some, but we we don't have sort of absolute arbitrary unit, unitary power in this respect. So anyway, I no, but it is, it's a real moment, and I, and I, I feel that I have more and more as this, we, we, we all thought this, I think five, six weeks ago, this was sort of an inflection point, a real moment of truth for, for us and for our allies and for the world. And I think that even more today. You know, I, I don't want to be misunderstood here, but I, I've been a long time admirer of Russian culture, uh, not, mm-hmm. a, not a politics in any way what's, whatsoever, but of, you know, r- Russian culture, Russian literature, r- Russian music. And you know what what, uh, what Zelensky said over the weekend, though, is, is true. He said, this is how the Russian state will now be perceived. This is your image. Your culture and human appearance perish together with the Ukrainian men and women. 
who you you murdered. And you think about all of the the advances of Russian civilization, just leaving Vladimir Putin aside, the the long term damage this has done. I mean, you can look at the the economic damage, you know, the, the way in which Russia was integrating itself into the world. And, and that seems to be over, at least for uh, the foreseeable future. But also, much of the world is going to be looking on the Russians the way that the world looked at the Germans after World War II. I mean, it is it is horrific, the damage that has been done. Whatever happens in Ukraine, the damage to Russian culture, Russian civilization, and it's, it's going to take a very, very long, I won't say it's irreversible, because everything is reversible, but it's going to be very difficult to wipe this off. And of course, one forgets that this was such a uh, common statement in the 30s and then 40s and 50s. Germany, of course, was the most advanced culture in the world, probably the most, uh, the greatest uh, music, literature, and a combination of uh, education, scholarship uh, in, you know, 1925, or for that matter, 1910, probably, uh, or certainly Germany, if you combine it with Austria and Hungary and so forth. And, uh, and, and, but politics matters a lot. I mean, this is actually a, a kind of an important lesson where one steps back. It doesn't take away the cultural achievements and the art and the music stand on their own and the literature, but in, in political leadership matters a lot. And, uh, it does. But again, this is why ultimately the agenda absolutely has to be to remove Putin from power and to allow the Russians to have a, a, a political system and political leadership that's more worthy of the... Uh, better aspects of their of their culture and their civilization i mean it's it, for me that that's one thing that this weekend brought home i already you and i i think i said this a week ago maybe on mm-hmm. on this body on this podcast that you know biden was right and his aides were wrong yes, they tried right. to walk back his statement that uh, putin ha- cannot be allowed to stay in power but how much more is that the case today well, yeah, and, and let's let's talk about Gary Kasparov's op-ed piece that he has in the Wall Street Journal today. Gary Kasparov, of course, being the you know former world chess champion, longtime Russian dissident, uh, who's been very, very outspoken. He's clarified on Twitter that he wrote this before the atrocities of the weekend were revealed, but he he addresses that point that you just made about Biden's walk back. Let me just redo one of the paragraphs. The problem came when the White House attempted to walk back the remark, but Vladimir Putin could not be allowed to remain in power calling it an ad lib that did not reflect a U.S. policy about regime change in Russia. This retreat, Kasparov writes, added fuel to my concerns about an internal split in the White House between those who sense the opportunity to toss Putin into the dustbin of history and those who are afraid of any change in the status quo and would rather deal with the devil they know. And then he has this very disturbing passage, which I wanted to get your take on. Kasparov writes, everything I hear from other NATO members is the U.S. has become the obstacle and an explanation is required. Allowing Mr. Putin to keep an inch of Ukrainian soil after bombing civilians should be unimaginable. Conceding large areas of eastern Ukraine to the invader in exchange for a ceasefire would only give Putin time to consolidate and rearm for the next time, and there will always be a next time. No peace deal should weaken the strong sanctions that have finally arrived eight years late. So your take on that, the suggestion is, is that the United States would be willing to live with a ceasefire that would allow Vladimir Putin to retain much or some of the territory that he has seized during this war. I I hope that's not the case. I thought it seems like President Biden himself actually may have internalized the notion that that can't be an acceptable outcome, which doesn't mean that he has to be or can be removed next week, right? There's an in-between kind of 
position of, of he has to go sooner or later, but our policy has to be one aiming towards his removal. And meanwhile, we're not going to accept, obviously, any kind of his consolidation of power over any part of Ukraine. And we're going to insist, at least on principle, on his withdrawal. We may not be able to effectuate that all exactly right away, but um, but we should try to, honestly. And that means really helping the Ukrainians as much as we can. I've heard Honestly, from some NATO people, you know, who are pretty close to the governments of NATO allies, that we are an obstacle at times to the really uh, assertive and vigorous uh, rearming of the Ukrainians. Others have said, "Well, you, more is happening behind the scenes than you might know." I, I have heard that we've done much more on the cyber front and on the information front than people realize, which is good. If we can keep, if we keep, have to keep it secret, that's fine. So I, I do think there's a bit of a split in the administration. Uh, and this is not based really on any inside knowledge. It's pretty obvious, I think, that the State Department, led by Tony Blinken, is more hawkish, I guess, if you want to put it that way. Interesting. I think Blinken was pretty good on television yesterday morning. And I think the National Security Council, uh, led by Jake Sullivan, is much more sort of overthinking everything and, and getting worried about this or that. But Look, it is. I've been there. It's complicated uh, when you're in government. I'll give one example of where one could defend the administration. I, China has stayed out of this so far. For all that people on our side, if I can put it that way, have worried incorrectly about a, a Russia-China alliance and the Putin, the Putin G statement from the Olympics, which is what two months ago now, and that China was really going to undercut our sanctions and even going to help rearm Russia and so forth. They seem not to have done that. They've said a few things that we don't like, really, but they've been pretty restrained. And we know there's been a ton of Biden administration diplomacy with China. Jake Sullivan had a seven-hour meeting uh, in Rome uh, with a senior Chinese official, and then Biden had a call later that week with Xi. Maybe one price of keeping China out was a certain degree of, of restraint on our part uh, in terms of uh, uh, explicitly talking too much about toppling Putin or, or uh, maybe in some of the arms that we've transferred or even in some of the sanctions. And maybe that's a deal one has to make. You know, this is a war, and it's 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 a little complicated. And I think the calls for a total energy embargo. I'm very sympathetic to that, but I mean, really, half of Germany's energy or something like that is comes from Russia at this point, and so doing that immediately is pretty hard. Um, I, I think the, the the version of Gary of Kasparov's argument that I would very much accept. So I'm I'm a little tentative or uncertain yeah. about the short term criticisms. Mm -hmm. The version that I would accept is that the administration has not articulated, the president has not articulated a big picture of of what this means. I mean, he says over and over, which is good, that this is autocracy versus democracy, and I and it's a test of our leadership and of the world's willingness to stand up. And I, I think that's useful and important. But he hasn't, it's not a sort of Harry Truman, 1948-1949 moment yet for the Biden administration. Look, we need to really think about a whole new set of arrangements and institutions, energy policy, for example, radical, you know, for now, develop all sources of energy and put some of the other stuff that the Democratic Party in particular likes on the back burner, some of the restraining of energy here, and, and also work with our European allies to really make sure no one's dependent on Russia as long as Putin's in power. So there are things that the administration has just been hesitant. And now they're in the middle of a very complex thing. They're working 16 hours mm -hmm. a day. I don't begrudge that. But yeah, the way I put it is, I hope they don't regard this as just a terrible thing that's happened, that they've got to do their best to, to handle and handle responsibly, but get beyond. And they see it as a real moment of truth, a real inflection right. point for the world. 
Well, and it, and it is. And I guess the question is, how does the world respond to what we saw this weekend? You know, there was a lot of rhetoric, a lot of hand-wringing. And let me just read you a couple of paragraphs from the Washington Post. Uh, responding to the images from Buka, at least three top European officials, names them, said they plan to impose tighter economic sanctions against Russia. A fundamental problem, however, which you mentioned, remains the billions of dollars worth of Russian oil and gas the world continues to buy, giving the Kremlin a direct financial lifeline. And my response was, well, maybe perhaps acts of genocide require a more robust response than economic sanctions. But what? I mean, at at this point, I have to say that, you know, I'm reading the accounts of how the ruble is getting back uh, much of its value, is clawing back much of its value, which raises questions in my mind, were these sanctions that we were told were devastating and crippling, were they in fact? as tough as we told ourselves and celebrated because right now the, the Russian economy, I mean, yeah, we, 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 there's no question we've done some damage, but not enough to deter Putin and not enough to endanger his standing with public opinion. So your thoughts on that? I know that Washington is addicted to sanctions and the sanctions are non-kinetic and they don't lead to World War III. But on the other hand, are sanctions the appropriate response to this ongoing genocide? I mean, they may be part of a response and they should be toughened if that's possible, but I've never thought they were the, you know, the magic solution that you have to win the war. And that's where I'd be more forward leaning, I think, on the weapons and on the other kinds of assistance. Uh, I did a conversation with Steve Rosen that's now online where he talks about how you cannot be deterred by Putin, Putin threatening World War III. What World War III means, of course, is nuclear weapons. And if you if we establish the principle that a nuclear weapon state can invade a neighboring country and commit war with impunity, uh, commit aggression with impunity, and then commit war crimes with impunity, you have set up a situation that's horrible in and of itself and horrible for the future. And so it doesn't mean you can be cavalier. It doesn't mean you have to, don't have to think through all the escalation uh, ladders and, and, and other things we can do to check him and take his threats seriously and make sure we can counter them. But this is where I think the, I, I come back to the weapons more than the sanctions. Yeah. I think help, the Ukrainians are willing to fight. This is not, and they're a big country. This is not a, you know, Georgia or something where you have to kind of accept the fact that a country of 160 million can do a lot of damage to a country of 7 million or whatever they are and snatch some of that territory. We just weren't willing to do what we maybe could have done or maybe couldn't have done, honestly, to, to reverse that. But this is very different. But you've got to both to to dignify, as it were, with the, the, the incredible sacrifices and the Ukrainians have made and the courage they've shown, but also to, to vindicate it going forward. This is the moment to just flood them with every weapon conceivable and to the degree we think is possible and responsible, uh, do some stuff from afar, perhaps, that, that helps out as well. Weapons, I think, at this point are more important than sanctions. It's human nature that it takes a long time to get your head around a completely different reality than you were expecting. So it was not unreasonable or irrational for people in the Biden administration to assume that if Russia invaded, that they would win the war quickly and that Ukraine would be defeated shortly. Now, obviously, that's not happening. Perhaps the opposite is going to happen. But it takes a long while to go from thinking that it's going to be a a quick and decisive defeat to thinking, wow, maybe Ukraine can win this war. And I guess the the fundamental question is, what is our goal? Do we understand that Ukraine can and must win this war? That's a big mental policy leap from where we were just a little more than a month ago, isn't it? 
because yeah, right now it, it is possible to win this war. So I guess the question is, can the Biden administration in the West make the transition into thinking, hey, you know what? Maybe our goal is not the status quo. Maybe our you know goal is not the ceasefire. Maybe, in fact, we can defeat Russia. Maybe Russia will lose this war. And ultimately remove Putin. I mean, as part yeah. of defeating Russia. Absolutely. I, I think that's... Very important. Uh, Biden was part of the Obama administration, which said over and over, along with everyone else, pretty much that Assad must go. That he his behavior in 2011 through well forever, but through 2013, especially with the use of chemical weapons, and then 2015 meant that he had to go, uh, and he hasn't gone. And I think we paid a huge price for that. You could find other moments where we didn't follow through on threats we made and on red lines we drew. But we paid a huge price for sort of letting these threats be empty threats. And in this case, we need to correct that. I mean, we need to do it for the sake of Ukraine and for the sake of the world, just in terms of who Putin is and the actual threat he poses and has posed to the things he's done. But also going forward, we need to reverse this sense, which has been going on for a while under both parties, that you can get away with these kinds of things, at least to some degree. And then Putin has now pushed the envelope to a greater degree and has found someone who really is able to to stand up under really excellent leadership and, and a country that's able to stand up on its own. We need to take advantage of this. I don't want to put it in that way. It's, it's the right thing to do. It's not an opportunistic thing to do, but we need to take advantage of this for the sake of civilization, really. I mean, here, let's flip it yeah. on, on its reverse. Yeah. If a year from now, Putin's in power, the sanctions are kind of vaguely going along. I think we probably have sanctions on Syria, don't we? But, but you know, he's doing okay. Uh, they occupy some chunk of Ukraine. Uh, they're still threatened. There's some frozen war, you know, the stuff going on on the borders. They're disrupting Ukrainian politics and the economy with all their usual means. Um, they're kind of getting back in business, going to meetings with European leaders and stuff. That is an unbelievable disaster much worse than the disaster of not removing Assad or other similar ones that we've uh, presided over or permitted or, or helped, to, helped to permit over the last uh, few decades. And so that's where I think, but that's where I totally agree with you. Biden just needs to step back and think that this is a new moment and we don't need to relitigate 2013 with the red line in Syria. We don't, he doesn't need to apologize for that. He doesn't need to reverse that explicitly. He needs, but they need internally all these people who serve in the Obama administration, Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan and President Biden and all the others. They need to explicitly understand this is different. This is a new moment and it requires very different policies. Okay, let's uh, change the focus a little bit to the the anti-anti-Putin right and uh, the interesting reaction to uh, Viktor Orban's election victory yesterday. But let's do that right after this. This is Charlie Sykes, and I want to tell you about Famous Smoke Shop. A good cigar is a reward. It's a tradition. At Famous Smoke Shop, they know all about it, American-owned and independent. Famous Smoke is your neighborhood cigar shop, no matter where your neighborhood is. As a matter of fact, Famous Smoke Shop was recently named the best place to buy cigars online by both Cool Material and Cigar World. Now in their 83rd year, Famous Smoke continues to offer the authentic cigar shop experience decades worth of cigar knowledge, a huge selection of premium cigars, and low prices that every cigar enthusiast will love. Famous Smoke Shop offers a huge selection of over a thousand brands to choose from. You'll find incredible deals on everyday cigars and highly rated classics, including Romeo, Monte Cristo, Acid, Macanudo, Oliva, and Fuente. Plus, every purchase is backed by their 30-day Famous Freshness Guarantee. So, 
if you want your cigars fresh and delivered fast, it has to be Famous Smoke Shop. I have to tell you, my wife and I had something that we wanted to celebrate the other night, and it seemed perfect to break out some of the cigars. I love the Macanudos, and we went out to the back porch, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. There's just sort of nothing like a cigar at the end of the day to celebrate, to celebrate some triumph or to just celebrate life, to celebrate spring. So here's an exclusive offer for my listeners. To save $20 off your purchase of $100 or more, go to famous-smoke.com. That's famous-smoke.com and use code BULLWORK at checkout to save $20 off your purchase of $100 or more. You'll get your favorite cigars delivered direct from their humidor to yours. That's promo code BULLWORK for $20 off your purchase at famous-smoke.com. Great cigar deals only at famous-smoke.com. And remember to use promo code BULLWORK. Okay, well, so we're back with Bill Crystal. Um, Bill, I'm, I'm sure you saw that over the uh, the weekend, uh, many of the paleocons, the anti-anti-Putin folks, uh, got together for an emergency summit meeting in Washington, D.C. to rethink and reevaluate their position on Russia and Ukraine, which, of course, I'm kidding because they didn't. They, they're all doubling down on all of this. Um, also, the reaction yesterday to Viktor Orban, who is the uh, autocrat of Hungary, uh, the far right's uh, darling, one re-election helped immensely by radical gerrymandering. One of the strange things about Viktor Orban is that despite his open illiberalism, he has been embraced by many American conservatives, including Donald Trump. By the way, I know that I'm misusing the word conservative here. Uh, mm-hmm. Donald Trump, who actually endorsed Viktor Orban, of all the people in the world, he endorsed him. Uh, Tucker Carlson has gone over to Hungary to actually broadcast from, from Hungary. And Rod Dreher, well-known writer for the American Conservative, tweeted out yesterday that uh, Viktor Orban is now the undisputed leader of the West. Really? At this particular moment? Bill Crystal, your thoughts? I mean, a couple of thoughts, mostly just disgust, and uh, of course, is my main thought or sentiment. <laughs> but um, I mean, Orban explicitly, he gave a couple of speeches on this and quite articulated, well-articulated is a defender of illiberal democracy. That idea was developed by people who understood that that, of course, was contrary to the main traditions of the West. I mean, in fact, a lot of that was presented as an attack on liberalism, which is the fundamental tradition of the modern West, Uh, political and civil liberties, the rule of law, what did Orwell call it, the law and liberty nations, uh, standing up to uh, aggression uh, with with courage. That's also an admirable aspect of of the West's uh, fighting dictatorship and fighting back against aggression on your native soil. I mean, and none of that, of course, is Orban is not Putin, but Orban is the way they get to be against the West without quite against us, against the U.S., against liberalism in the broad sense, without quite embracing Putin. So I, I do think that uh, for one point, one point to make is that the embrace of Orban is a sort of dishonest way. I, I sort of feel like they should go all the way, you know, and just say they're for Putin, because in practice, that's kind of what they're legitimizing. They certainly haven't been exactly. Roger, it's very revealing, right? He, 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 he's very enthused about Orban's victory. I don't, maybe I missed it, but I haven't seen much in the way of denunciation of these grotesque war crimes no, uh, none. By, no. by Russia, which are being carried out at the behest and under the authority and with the approval of the chief war criminal, Putin. 
I just want to come back to that point one time. I mean, this is not like some, of course, every country fights wars and then has rogue elements who commit, you know, commanders and soldiers and who commit crimes. And uh, you try to, in the case of the U.S., we'd actually try to prosecute people for them, though Trump, of course, pardoned several of the war criminals uh, from Iraq and Afghanistan. But in this case, this is not a bug. This is a feature of, of Putin as the chief war criminal. So, But they don't want to quite be for Putin, most of these illiberal national conservatives. So they've sort of retreated to being for Orban. But, but then they want to say, but Orban represents the West, which is really dishonest. Unless you think the West is about illiberal democracy, unless you think the West is about, like I tweeted this morning that it's, um, this is sort of like in 1940, as Churchill and Britain stood alone against Hitler, saying, Pétain, the head of Vichy, France, represents the best of the West, that the West, the true traditions of the West. That is what Orb, Orban is Pétain. And there were people who said that. And suddenly I, I, after I did the tweet, I was like thinking, well, that's, maybe that's a little extreme. And then I no, remember, I well, of course, that. that's literally what America First types were for, right? Don't intervene in Europe. The Pétain solution isn't so terrible. At least the Germans aren't occupying all of France. Paris still looks nice, you know? And um, so, uh, I mean, it really is disgusting in my view. And the whole catering to Orban. Um, they shouldn't get away with it. Orban has rigged the, the, taken over the media in Hungary and done a hundred things which make it not really a free and fair election. But even if it were a free and fair election, it doesn't change the, the fact that he's uh, he's, again, he's not Putin. He can't be Putin because he has a very small country that he runs. But he's, he's an explicit defender of illiberal democracy. And Somehow, all these American conservative paleocon types, they don't quite want to even quite say that, right? Maybe they do some of them, I guess, to be fair. The others are just uh, you know, muddying over what exactly is at stake well, here. Anyway, I mean, the, here yeah. we have an actual, incidentally, Central European leader, East European leader, who is an incredible defender of everything it that is. is admirable of the West. Zelensky, right? Yeah. I mean, it tells you everything you need to know, that Rod Dreher looks at the world today literally today, yesterday, right? In light of the war crimes, in light of what's happened in the last six weeks, and in light of what Zelensky has done, one of the really amazing feats of leadership on behalf of the best liberal values, on behalf of decency, on behalf of defending yourself against brutal aggression. He looks at the world today, and the person he finds to praise is Orban, the illiberal Orban, and not Zelensky. Well, I mean, and, and for people who are going, well, who's Rod Dreher? Why are you guys talking about Rod Dreher? I've never heard of Rod Dreher. Um, he, he is not a complete outlier in this, the modern right-wing movement. I mean, the, the Tucker Carlson has embraced Viktor Orban. Uh, as I said, Donald Trump has endorsed him. Listen to yeah, this. Donald though. Trump. Okay. Let's not forget him. He's, I know we're supposed to he forget endorsed him, him, but he is yeah. this guy who was president of the United States and is currently the most likely Republican nominee for 2024. I totally agree with you. Everyone is, oh, yeah. why are you focusing on this person no. or that person, really? <laughs> he would be irrelevant except for that fact. So let me just read you this account. Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban was reelected on Sunday and named Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky as among his opponents in his victory speech. Orban, an ally of Russian President Vladimir Putin, has touted himself as a sharp defender of Hungary and its people, casting his lack of intervention on Ukraine's behalf as a strength. Speaking to supporters on Sunday, Orban listed the forces his party had struggled against in the election. The international left all around, the Brussels bureaucrats, the Soros empire with all of its money, the international mainstream media, and in the end, even the Ukrainian president. Well, first of all, it sounds like he could speak at any Trump rally there, but I do think that it's a clarifying moment. You know, for people who say, okay, it's very clear that we choose, what do we believe, which side are we on? If you choose Orban, you've chosen a side. 
There's no question about it. And it's that this is this is the side. It's not just illiberalism. It is the side that rationalizes what Vladimir Putin is doing. And Orban you know, keeps tearing off the mask. You know, I mean, for people who go, well, no, there's no connection with uh, Putin. And oh, clearly, you know, he's, he's neutral there. He stands up there and says that among the opponents I defeated was the Ukrainian President Zelensky. So there you have it. And and Trump tears off the mask all the time. I mean, he has in the past defending the, the Chinese repression at Tiananmen, defending Putin in the past. And uh, and still today, I mean, he has had a whole rally Saturday night. I, of course, didn't watch it, or but I did skim, you know, sort of highlights of it. Uh, maybe I missed it, but again, I don't think there was a denunciation of 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 Putin's invasion exactly, or or certainly of war crimes. If we, I think we do about them on Saturday night, or of anything anything of, of that nature. He puts out a lot of statements every day, doesn't he? Trump. He could. He's a former president of the United States. He could denounce ghastly, grotesque war Good. crimes, but but he 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 chooses not to. And of course, I, I have to admit that there's. There's many tedious arguments out there that I have no patience for, but uh, the one that I really have no patience for is the people who say, you know, you guys should should not be focusing on Trump. You guys should just move on from Trump. You should ignore Trump because, you know, no, Trump is still the overwhelming favorite to be the Republican nominee for 2024. He is at least a 50-50 chance to be the next president of the United States. We played that game of, hey, if we just pretend that Donald Trump is just a joke, which he is, but if, if we just ignore Donald Trump, if we don't engage with Donald Trump, he'll just go away. We tried that. And how did that work out? The fact that people are still making the argument when Trump looms like this giant dark moon over the Republican Party. Did you see what Mitch McConnell said? over the last couple of days that oh, this shouldn't be a, a litmus test for Republican candidates, how they feel about Donald Trump, because that's completely irrelevant. Well, that's what we call on this uh, podcast wish casting, right? Denial. Mitch McConnell saying that that it should be irrelevant what you think about uh, Donald Trump, because, of course, that has become the litmus test in the Republican Party. It's remained the litmus test. And also it's kind of the cop out of Mitch McConnell not taking a strong stand or not allowing his uh, his allies to take a strong stand to say, we cannot allow this man back in the White House. We cannot allow him to destroy the Western alliance. It would be a terrible idea to give Donald Trump the nuclear codes back again. And I, I find this extraordinary. I mean, even people who were not never Trump, you would think they would at least see the overwhelming logic of being never again Trump right, Mr. Crystal? No, I, I totally agree. No, I think the sophisticated answer to what you said, and of course, I totally agree with you, is, well, we need to let people kind of gradually come back, and it's better to have less Trump than more Trump. And there's some truth to that, and there, I don't quarrel with that. And uh, I'm, I'm rooting for the less bad candidates, I suppose, in these Republican primaries, uh, because I think it's probably less bad for the country. But at the end of the day, if Trump is the nominee, if they'll support Trump, they you know, that that's unacceptable for me. And and really, people are underestimating the p true threat of Trump be becoming the nominee, which, as you say, is at least 50-50, I think, and then becoming president, which is at least 50-50 of that 50-50. So I think at least a quarter, maybe higher, that he's the next president. That is truly disastrous. I mean, especially in a way much worse after everything we've seen. Again, the idea that he'd be reelected after January 6th, what is that? That makes us, I mean... No better than Hungary, and to be fair to the Hungarians, they're dealing with incredibly uh, tightly controlled media and and other institutions, which hopefully we don't have yet. So, I mean, it really is 
depressing, the thought. And McConnell himself, I mean, he gave, I just went back and looked just before we got on at the speech he gave on January 19th, I think it was, very strong denunciations of Trump and yeah. how unacceptable what he had done was and he couldn't be let off the hook for this. It's only a year later. We're not talking 10 years later, right? It's a year later and he's basically, well, no one has to say anything about Trump. He's this kind of awkward presence in our past and we're just going to move on. That is not how it works. All right, so Sarah Palin is back. Let's take a deep breath. Talk about that on the other side. Are you one of the millions of people who mostly invest in stocks? Because J.P. Morgan predicts that returns for stock-heavy portfolios will be under 5% for the next decade. As a fix, they say that alternative assets are no longer optional. And J.P. Morgan, Citi, and Morgan Stanley all agree there's one asset in particular you should be looking at, contemporary art. Because they know contemporary arts returns have outpaced the S&P 500 for the last 25 years by a whopping 164%. And it has the lowest correlation to public equities of any major asset class. Now that you know the secret, I can tell you about Masterworks. They let you add contemporary art to your portfolio at a price customized to you with no hassle. If you want to skip their waitlist, go to masterworks.io and use promo code BULWARK. That's masterworks.io, promo code BOLWORK. Before deciding to invest, carefully review important disclosures at masterworks.io slash CD. Okay, we are back, Bill. Nothing ever goes away. Time is a flat circle, right? Uh, (laughs) Sarah Palin, you could argue, uh, sort of launched this nationalist populist era that uh, resulted in Donald Trump. Well, she is back. Uh, Donald Trump last night endorsed her. For Congress, there are more than 50 candidates running in that particular seat. If you saw what I wrote yesterday, that you know, Sarah Palin looks around at the current Republican Party, sees Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, Madison Cawthorn, Paul Gosar, Matt Gates, and thinks, hey, I'll fit right in here. And she's not wrong, is she? It's depressing. I mean, I knew Palin a little bit in 2008, mm-hmm. and once Lieberman became, an, according to the McCain people, an impossible choice, I was okay with the choice of Palin. And thought maybe it could be for the better, kind of incorporate a certain amount of populism into a McCain-led Republican Party. And to be fair to Palin, in 2008, she was a little dopey, and she turned out to be much dopier yet, but she ran as a McCain Republican. You didn't really know, you shouldn't do any of this stuff, explicitly at least, at that point. She's a little populist, but she wasn't anti-immigration, she wasn't isolationist, she wasn't bigoted at all. Now she's decided subsequently uh, it turned out to be, she turned out to a very bad character and she got worse in 2009, Ted, and, and then she threw in totally with Trump in 2016. And her reward is that Trump has endorsed her for Don Young's seat in Alaska. And I, I suppose she has to be favored to win that seat. I don't, I don't follow Alaska politics very closely, so I don't know. It'll be great to have her there along with all the others in, in the Republican conference. Maybe it'll make Kevin McCarthy's life miserable, though. That that's sort of a, an upside, you know. I don't think Sarah Palin is going to go there and think I should just take orders from Kevin McCarthy, right? So she'll be useful in that respect. So somebody uh, emailed me uh, today says, you know, you, you should ask Bill Crystal tough questions about his role in promoting Sarah Palin. And look, and I'm not in a position, Bill, to drop on anybody given my track record. I mean, I I have Ron Johnson and uh, Sheriff David Clark, so I I judge no one. No, I I I, 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 I judge keep... absolutely no one. But I will I will tell you this that I am slightly obsessed with this question. I have sat in my kitchen. And watch side by side videotapes of her from 2008 when she seemed reasonably normal to watching what she has become because something happened, something broke. 
And and as an indication of that, the fact that during the Trump presidency, they didn't allow her within 100 miles of the MAGAverse. I mean, when you think about it, that she was too nutty, too nuts for Trump world. It tells you that something happened, something broke in her. But then something broke in the whole Republican Party. See, that's and really the key so, point. I, you know, I, I, the I Republican take, Party came around to her nuttiness, you know? I'm happy to take whatever responsibility yeah. I should take for yeah, being yeah. Uh, supportive of the Palin pick once it happened and, and during the general election when I supported the McCain Palin ticket. I'll also say I was very supportive, uh, and you were too, I think we, we talked at the yeah. time, of the pick of Paul Ryan in 2012. Very And much. I mean, how much better is Paul Ryan's quiet accommodation of it all and service on the Fox board of directors of something you've written eloquently about and you were very close to paul and i was reasonably close to him then palin's nuttiness it's better obviously i mean it's presumably better i guess it's better maybe it's even more damaging in some ways and it's sort of like orban and palin you know you sort of think okay fine if they just want to cut out of the closet and, say, and be lunatics uh, it's almost a clearer choice the establishment republicans the paul ryan's and to some degree the mitch mcconnell's certainly the kevin mccarthy's they're the ones who have really enabled this. I, I always come back to that. Trump by himself could not have done uh, one little bit of the damage that he was able to do when the Republican Party capitulated to Trump. It, the, 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 the disaster we're facing is one of our two major parties being Trumpist. It's not one guy with a magic spell. He has a bit of a magic spell, and he's done a huge amount of damage as an individual. But it's the party's cap establishment's capitulation to him that has really made possible the, the damage he has done and the threat that he poses. I was going to get into Ron DeSantis and what's going on there, but I want to go back to Viktor Orban for a moment and the fact that conservatives think of him now as this, this icon of what the West should be. I think it was uh, Nick Gillespie from Reason who tweeted out, so apparently now to be a leader of the West, you need to be anti-gay and anti-immigrant. That's the essence of the West right now. And it is interesting how, in fact, that this anti-gay sentiment has now suddenly become absolutely central to the Republican Party. Ron DeSantis totally doubling down on this. You can see that people like Christopher Rufo, you know, the outrage entrepreneur charlatan who pushed the, the anti-CRT campaign is now all in on anti-gay rhetoric. This is not inevitable. I mean, a lot of it I look at and I go, okay, well, I, I see where that came from. I see where that came from. I see where that came from. Donald Trump explicitly said during his acceptance speech in 2016 that he supported gay marriage, that he supported gay rights. And yet Trumpism has now decided that the issue of gender identity has become central to the culture war. Is this another indication of the gap between the elites of the Republican Party and the base? Yeah, I mean... Uh Part of me wants to say it can't be serious. I mean, they don't think seriously that same-sex marriage is going to be reversed. They presumably know gay people out, in, you know, in, in Michigan and uh, North Carolina where these Trump rallies are, just like people do in in uh, where you live or I live. I mean, it just seems impossible to me that these fundamental social and cultural changes are going to be reversed. I don't think people really think they will be. So there's a kind of performative aspect to it and and a kind of total ir irresponsible demagoguery to it and taking advantage maybe of people's prejudices, of course, and then some genuine reactions to some probably foolish you know, curricula in a couple mm -hmm. of cases in second grade or whatever. But I, I do agree that this has always been the trouble. Once you let the toothpaste out of the tube, once the demagoguery gets out there, once it's successful, once people sort of enjoy it and don't really think through presumably one hopes one hopes they don't think it through though then they 
but it has a sort of force of its own, right? And I think when yeah. you read the histories of, not to compare everything, of course, to the 20s and 30s in Europe and God knows to Nazi Germany, but, you know, there was a heck of a lot of, of, of anti-Semitism that was just, you know, performative, we would say today. These yeah. people knew Jews. They didn't want to kill Jews. They just, it was a good rabble-rousing technique and it was a way of uh, kind of mobilizing people behind your own party and your own uh, political agenda and it sort of was a kind of way to kind of embody a lot of to, just like Orban did in that statement you read embody a lot of sentiments without kind of bothering to specify exactly what who's causing what but just this is all they're causing the problem you know and and one's tempted not to take it any more seriously than one takes Ron DeSantis's attack on Disney. Disney is not leaving, you know, they, they are not no. going to actually put Disney out of business in Florida. They don't want to, and they they know better, of course. And DeSantis's staff helped write the legislation that gave Disney a new special mm-hmm. break in addition to all the other special breaks they have in Florida law just a year ago, right? But certain part of me, certain part, I think, of people, you don't want to take it too seriously in a way. But that's maybe a mistake. History suggests that can be a mistake. Yeah. You know, people didn't take Putin seriously when just a year ago he sort of went on this rant about how Ukraine isn't a separate nation and it's really got to be part of Russia. And and now look where we are. I think we need to take all of this seriously. I struggle against any irrational optimism here. <laughs> there, there is a sense, though, that perhaps this fire has gotten out of control, that they are pushing this too far. A war with Disney. Smart politics? Really? an iconic company like that. Imagine what the Republican Party in 2023 and 2024 is going to look like if they control Congress and one of the faces of the new majority is Sarah Palin. Yeah. You know, this yeah. is one of those where sometimes um, too much is too much. Yeah. No, I, 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 I agree with that. I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, there, there is there is that possibility. The other part of taking it seriously, and, and again, you know, I'm sort of my mind is, is racing while I'm listening to you, you know, talking about the historical analogy. Let's go back to where we started these uh, these horrific stories of the atrocities, you know, these people whose hands are tied behind their back who are murdered in cold blood by the Russians. The Ukrainians are the brothers of the Russians and you know, they may be Russian speaking and yet they are murdering them you know, systematically. How does that happen? Well, it happens after a long process of dehumanization, a long process of vilification, a long process of saying that uh, these people are your enemies, they are Nazis. What would you do to a Nazi? If you actually do think that you are dealing with Nazis, then your behavior would be different than if you were dealing with your neighbor who is living in freedom and democracy. And so these ideas have consequences. I mean, who knows what was in the hearts of the people to pull those triggers. But I, I think it's naive not to take it seriously that if you have this process of you know really vicious divisiveness and the labeling of people in this particular way, that it will have ugly and fatal consequences. No, I think that's well said. I think that's so true. I mean, Jews lived in Europe for decades and centuries and often, you know, discrimination and some pogroms even, but in many places did very well in Germany in particular. And everyone had, it sounds like a parody, I must say it, Jewish friends and neighbors. And yeah. then it gets out of control, if you want to put it that way. It's politically weaponized. And suddenly these neighbors decide, okay, well, you know, I, I can go along with a little persecution and maybe I can benefit from it. And and suddenly you have this, there's so many stories after World War II of people I saying, know. I can't believe they turned on us this way. You know, we, we lived in this, uh, we, we'd been in the city for generations and had gotten along pretty well and were tradespeople and merchants and stuff. So 
I don't want to exaggerate this. I certainly no, don't reduce no, 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 to no. that example, but I think it's very important what you say. And, and that's where people, I think like me probably who are a little bit like, oh, come on, this is just silly mm -hmm. and childish. I don't know. Silly and childish things can be silly and childish. It can still result in a lot of death and destruction. But I, I, and I think hopefully this moment of, you know, a liberal democracy, that's a fun thing to write long articles about and rediscover some old critics right. of democracy and liberalism. But let's look at what it really means in practice. And what it means in practice is what we saw this weekend in Ukraine. Okay. So a final word, because I know that people always listen to these podcasts for our discussion of what we are watching on television, particularly British series. I went through kind of a, a dark place where there wasn't anything that was speaking to me. So you have any recommendations? I, I haven't watched much uh, e either recently for whatever various reasons, but um, I gather there is now on one of these uh, streaming services, is it Apple Plus, yeah. uh, Slow Horses, um, which yeah. I haven't seen. I read the first, there's several volumes of this series, and I read the first one, which is called Slow Horses, which was, I believe, and uh, which was very good. I mean, it was a little, it was very John Le Carre-like, kind of a, uh, it wasn't quick and snappy. It wasn't Jack Reacher. It wasn't yeah. uh, Michael Connolly, but it was it was very intelligent and evocative. And so I don't know. Have you seen this new series? I haven't seen it. I actually have. Oh wow! Um, I actually watched the first two episodes, and it was good enough that when I got to the end of the second episode, I thought, you know what, I'm going to watch the next one. But it had not yet dropped. It's oh, so it's being dropped like right. week by week. Uh -huh. Right. So um, I, I, it looks good to me. It's got a great cast. I don't know where it's going to go necessarily, but yes, I strongly recommend it. I just got done watching Ted Lasso for the second time. So uh, I don't know whether you've gotten around to watching Ted no, Lasso. I haven't. That's very, shocking very, very that they're good. dropping this week. But they should be a uh, This is a case where I am sort of a, you know, a, a big government conservative. Shouldn't there be a law requiring them to drop the I whole mean, season definitely. at once? It's how, what is, I, I, I mean, think that's so. terrible to make us wait each week for what, for what happens next, especially in a suspense thriller type show. Yeah. It reminded me what it was like in the 90s. Right. Had to, <laughs> <laughs> to wait around. Uh, the other thing that I am thoroughly enjoying is season five of The Last Kingdom which is on mm. Netflix. Uh, excellent series. I, in fact, it, I, I enjoy it so much that I went back and watched season four to get myself in the mood for season five. Strongly recommend that. And I am way late on all of this. So I apologize to people um, because I've waited five years to go back and watch Blade Runner 2049, in part because I was such a big fan of the original Blade Runner, which I think is one of the great masterpieces of science fiction. And I thought, uh, okay, you know, what if this is just going to be some sort of a knockoff? What if it's going to be, you know? And I sat down over the weekend, and I have saved this movie for so long, sort of saved it for some special event, and, and instead I watched it this weekend. No special event whatsoever. And I have to say that if you have not watched it, it is incredible. Blade Runner 2049 was actually released back in 2017, so I am way late to it. I was absolutely blown away by how good it was. And I guess sort of reminded me how good some of these movies can be in contrast to some of the more recent ones, which I think I'm on a, a bad stretch of watching Hollywood movies that I'm going, okay, who did you make this for? <laughs> not the audience. Well, not the isn't audience. that long ago. I think, I think it's good that you're up to this. You're, you're more up to date with things than I am. I'm busy watching, you know, <laughs> 1976 reruns of things so, or, or movies. So that's, that's good that you're staying in touch, at least for the last decade, you know? Well, there's just no excuse to be bored. That's the point. There is no excuse to say there's just nothing on what are you saying there are under the thing is though you have to search for them you know what i've actually gotten really into and this may be this may be cynical but then i i confess to being cynical if you go on rotten tomatoes 
and you ever see a huge gap between the critics' reviews and the audience reviews, it's a warning sign. You know what I'm saying here? It's like if a movie is like 88% critics liked it, but only 30% of viewers liked it, that is a warning sign. That's just a tell. I'm just so we are populists in a way, after all. I'm, this is I the am, healthy am, kind of populism. I am, I'm, I am I'm, just, I'm with you on this. There are the movies that you are supposed to like, and then the movies you actually like. And I am totally into the movies that I actually like these right. days, just so you know. Well, it's the late Paul Cantor, who I did so many conversations with, and such a wonderful professor at UVA. I used to like to say Shakespeare was the most popular dramatist of his time, as well as the greatest of all time. So there's there's some Absolutely. correlation, at least, between that's right. They used to judgment. be, yeah, e exactly. Bill Crystal, thank you so much for joining me on this Monday edition of the Bulwark Podcast. My pleasure, as always, Charlie. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast, and we'll be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again.